Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English and David Emmett this week bring you the show. And David, we've got a bit of a treat for everyone. We've got basically a feature show. Just myself and yourself. Neil, unfortunately, we're recording this in the couple of hours a day where Neil's able to actually get outside in Barcelona. So he has much more press and things to do rather than talk to me and you. But uh, Dave, we're going to talk about the role of different people within a race team over the course of a race weekend. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a really important topic and a topic which I think is quite often not very well understood because people have um, all sorts of ideas of what uh, the role of everyone in a team is. And it's both more complicated and less complicated than people think. Who's the most important person in the team, Dave? Is it the rider? Is it the crew chief? Is it the press officer that controls the debrief times? It's definitely the press officer who controls the debrief times. Um, uh, that, uh, to me, uh, certainly, I don't care how the rider does for me. So um, I just need to know that I will have enough time to ask these stupid questions, which I have uh, written down. So um, that's the most important thing. But, I mean, seriously, it's not... Uh, it's genuinely a team sport. I mean, yes, when when the rider is out there on track... There is just one person, um, but he or she uh, cannot function without uh, without the right support, without the, without the bike working, without having everything in place, without his without the, without his mind being in the right place. There's so many there the, 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 the so many different bits and pieces to it, which is which is what makes makes it so fascinating, really. Yeah, and for for me, one of the key things has always been the crew chief and different engineers, because with a rider, you always get a certain amount of information that's filtered to you. You always get stuff that's obviously going to be said to you in, in a style to paint that rider in a positive light. Even when you're talking off the record to a rider, it, you've always got that little bit of a, of a guard up for a rider. But whenever you talk to a crew chief... A lot of the time, you just get information because they know that they've got way more information than they're ever going to give out. And all the stuff that we will take has been very important for our background information is really high level for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they are... uh, um they're giving us the tip of the iceberg and making it feel like uh, it's the whole iceberg sort of thing. It really is. Um, uh, because the other thing is, I mean, I don't know about you, Stephen, and you're you're a smart enough fella uh, to, to to understand it. And you you know you've had a you spent a life studying bike racing, so you should know one or two things. But even then, if someone actually sort of sat you down in front of a data sheet and pointed at all the bits and pieces, you'd be as confused as me. You'd uh, sort of just nod politely and say, mm, "Yes, mm, yes, chatter, yes." bad uh, which um, ones zeros yeah it looks good to me lads yeah exactly yeah, exactly so it's um, uh, um, these are the things because uh, I mean normally at this time well normally last week I would have been driving down to Lamar uh, in the car with Peter Bomb the um, uh, crew chief for Danny Kent for Stephen Bradle and for a whole bunch of people um, and uh, we normally manage to spend about eight hours talking about the technical side of bike racing. And even then, I don't feel he tell he tells me about sort of two percent of what he really knows. Yeah, I remember reading the story, Dave, about Murray Walker, the Formula One commentator, and he used to take on any work that he could get. And there was one time whenever he was asked to do like the British Weightlifting Championship, but he only did it on just the one 
the one stipulation he had was, I'll do this as long as I drive down to the event with the president of the British Weightlifting Association. And for a six hour drive, all he did was talk about weightlifting. He had no interest in this man's life. He had no interest in anything other than weightlifting. Now for the weightlifting man, this was great because he was able to impart all of his knowledge. He was able to feel that he was really given on something to to help the sport do different things and for someone like peter that's also how he feels because over the time over the time that i've been in the paddock people like peter have been really important to basically just explain their job to explain what happens on the bike to explain the feelings that a rider has and how that can be translated into the data that they see yeah exactly i mean that's um uh what they're talking to us i mean the, the you crew chiefs are obsessive everyone involved in at, at this level of, of, of bike racing in any world championship paddock is completely obsessive um uh, they're as competitive as everyone uh, as as the riders they're as competitive as, as anyone involved in the sport uh, so uh, yeah they they get really deep into uh, into bike racing and really deep in, into sort of the, the minutiae of everything um and they're so obsessed with it that, it that that they want to share that passion whenever they get the chance to actually talk about that passion um then they will they will take they will take it and as you say steve they know so much that um uh, uh they can talk to you for hours and hours and hours and never never really tell you anything which they were or which they weren't supposed to yeah unless they're talking about their ex-riders then you get plenty <laughs> of information but for for a team dave obviously when you look at the restrictions that are potentially in place for MotoGP whenever racing resumes, 20 people per bike, it really does show you the importance of different rules because you need to have someone for the tyres, you need to have someone for electronics, suspension, chassis, mechanics, crew chief, everything. But it's going to be a case of where do you place those resources? There's going to be people in that hierarchy that are more important than other people. And it's going to be really interesting to see how teams end up using their resources whenever these restrictions get put into place. Yeah, it's also going to be interesting to see where the where different factories uh, or how different factories handle it differently because that, that would give you a chance to see the actual, the different priorities of each factory. Um, uh, perhaps a, one factory might, might choose, you know, one particular data engineer and another one might look, uh, might have an extra, an extra chassis person or an extra engine person or whatever, uh, wandering around. Uh, usually, um, even though I've been sort of, you know, working in pit lane for the past couple of years, I still wouldn't recognise any of them. So I wouldn't be, I'm not sort of clever enough to um, uh, to, to actually identify them. But uh, if you uh, if you were um, uh, if you were conscientious enough and had learned all their names, then you, you know you, you could learn about about the priorities of each factory. Yeah, Tom Bojard, for instance, would be <laughs> yes. perfect for this. If anyone has heard Tom on the podcast in the past, basically Tom talks to everyone. I've never, I've never seen anyone in any paddock that talks to as many people as possible like Tom. He basically goes to someone from each manufacturer in each of the classes, each tire tech, everything, and he'll get as much little nuggets of information as he can, and he puts all that into what he writes in uh, in France as well. So you get tons of great information just by chatting to people like Tom. And obviously, David, whenever you read something like what Matt Oxley writes, he always has a lot of insight from 
different people that have worked in the paddock over the last 30 years with Matt. So he's built up an awful lot of trust to be able to get lots of background information on different elements of what's happening out there on a bike. But for um, everyone back home, Dave, can you break down basically how a team has to try and and, uh, approach a race weekend? Obviously, at home, we see the televised sessions, free practice one through to the race, but there's an awful lot more that goes into it rather than, than just the action on track. Yeah, I mean, it starts before they even arrive at the track. I mean, um, uh, the, the crew chief and, um, uh, I mean, I, it, it's possibly slightly easier to talk about um, a satellite team rather than a factory team because the satellite team simply has far fewer choices and far fewer uh, uh, complications because, you know, factory bosses and factory engineers like Gigi Delinia will have a whole bunch of parts and will have a um, uh, uh, will have decided what the priority is and what he wants tested at a particular weekend and all the rest of it. Whereas, um, uh, and also, uh, it's particularly, for example, with Gigi Delinia, uh, some of those parts will go into the Pramac garage. Uh, being the number one rider in the para- in, in Pramac is um, uh, great for you, good for your prestige, but uh, not so good for your workload because you basically get to test out all of the settings which Gigi thinks might work for the factory guys, or and some of the parts which might work for the factory guys uh, before um, uh, uh, before it gets moved up to the factory uh, riders. So the factory riders can concentrate on trying to win the championship. We saw that with Jack Miller, for example, with the with the whole shot device and with uh, uh, the the, the shape shifting device. Uh, so yeah, it's a uh, it, it's that kind of risk, but that. You know that's a little bit more complicated than just a satellite team. Yeah, and you saw it as well with Maverick Vinales basically saying, "I don't want to test anything. I want to just have a finished product that I can get the absolute limit out of." Because in the article that you wrote, David on Moto Matters, with uh, Peter Baum giving the electronics engineers perspective, you open with basically the challenge that a team faces. They're in a race against time. It's not about the 45 minutes or the hour-long sessions, it's about the time between those sessions to find improvements, to make the steps. And it's always interesting whenever you talk to teams about the process that it takes for them to get to that point. Because when we arrive in the media center, you know, 12 o'clock on Wednesday, on Thursday afternoon, you've already had the teams there for a day, the riders are all starting to arrive, and the process for how they approach the weekend, it started well in advance of the trucks rolling out. The crew chief will have been coming up with a plan, whether it's the new parts that G- that Gigi has to be tested. That crew chief has to structure the weekend around making sure that you can get usable data from however many exits you're going to use those, those parts for. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's, it's really important. Uh, and this, I think, is also a really interesting difference between World Superbikes and MotoGP, because in MotoGP, you've got two bikes, so you can actually back-to-back things. You can uh, uh, try something. Um, uh, if you're not sure if it's working, if you want to try something else, you can uh, uh, the, the rider can jump from one bike on uh, onto another, uh, send the rider out, and then the, 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 the you don't lose very much time. You've, you've actually made the adjustment. Whereas in World Superbikes, um, you don't have... Have that time you've got you know you don't have the second bike uh, that means you have to think about the, the you're much more restricted in the changes you can make because you know a, a changing a shock might take sort of a minute maybe two minutes um uh but changing um changing a swing arm uh you know that's uh, that would be a 20 30 minute job and that's just not going to be possible to to, to do in a single session 
Yeah, obviously in World Superbikes, we have the one bike rule. So if you have a crash in free practice one or free practice two or the Super Pro session, you can elect to change to your second bike, your backup bike, but then you're left with that bike for the rest of the weekend. Obviously, as you said, David, a MotoGP jump from one bike to the other, you make significant changes from one to the other. And that was one of the interesting things I found whenever I talked to Lars Baz about the challenges of MotoGP versus World Superbikes. And what Lara says is, an awful lot of the work has to be done in advance. You need to make sure that you've got a decent base setting. You need to make sure that you can make small changes during a session. That could be, as you said, David, change the shocks. It could be changing the spring rates. It could be small things that take five, six, seven, eight minutes to change, and then you're out again. So an awful lot of the time, it's the electronics that they're able to change. It's small step-by-step changes that they make in World Superbikes, whereas in MotoGP, you can just make wholesale changes because you've got those two bikes. Yeah, exactly. And it's not common that people actually do that because, um, uh, as we were saying before, the teams, uh, the, the the crew chief and the teams come to the race with a, you know, with, with a ballpark idea of what they think they, they are going to need from the, uh, from the bike. Um, that depends on a lot of things, what, especially, for example, what tyres are going to be available, uh, what compounds and structure, construction is going to be, uh, going to be available. And I think that's uh, possibly a little bit more complicated in World Superbikes because they, you know, the, 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 there are just more tyre choices. Um, uh, and so they, they have a ballpark idea. And so roughly, usually what you're doing is just making sort of small changes from one to another. But sometimes you get to a track and uh, the bike just doesn't seem to be, seem to be working the way that you thought. Um, and so they have to make wholesale changes just to try and uh, just to try and get the bike to work, to, just to try and find um, uh, to, to find something when it's not working the way they're expected. Yeah, and I think that's one of the key things, Dave. You mentioned the tyre situation. And in Superbikes, that is actually one of the biggest considerations a team has for how they structure their weekend. Because you're limited in the in the allocation you have. You've got 24 tyres, you've got 11 fronts and 13 rears that you can use throughout the course of the weekend. So you really need to manage how those tyres are used. Now, Pirelli tend to bring a lot of different compounds and construction so a team will look at their allocation list and they'll say you know what actually we need both riders to try different things there might be a new rear tire that works really well for the race but the team need to assess if it works well for the race whereas they might look at a new front tire and uh, just see whether or not it improves the feeling or something like that so one rider might work on one thing another rider on uh, a long run pace kind of thing and that's where you know, a team like Yamaha was at a big advantage in recent years because even though Alex Lowe's and Michael Vandermark had totally different riding styles, you were actually able to get both of them to work together to be able to really bring forward that bike, bring forward that package and, and just work as a team. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can contrast that, for example, with uh, with Honda, Repsol Honda last year. I mean, Mark Marquez, uh, you know, Jorge Lorenzo just not did not gel with that bike. Um and so everything was down to Mark Marcus. But Mark Marcus, uh, again, he's been with his team for such a long time. They all understand each other really, really well. They, uh, they, they have a plan. They, or they, they all trust each other. Um, uh, they understand how the plan works. And so what you would see with Mark Marcus is that he would, um, not have to waste so much time, 
uh, testing tires because they they would have a rough idea of which that what they thought was going to be the uh, the race tire before the weekend started, uh, and he'd just concentrate, especially in. FP2, um, the Friday afternoon session, which would be usually the closest conditions to a race, um, uh, well, during any of the free practice sessions anyway, uh, possible, with the possible ex- exception of, uh, of FP4, um, and uh, just have that tyre run all the time on the tyre. Uh, and also because Mark was so fast and so confident um he knew there was never going to be a problem getting through to getting through to q2 uh, and other riders who were less capable of actually you know throwing it i spoke to diego goblini um fabio quattararo's uh crew chief about that and he said yeah well the yamaha but the yamaha is much more important to it's much more difficult it doesn't have as much top speed it's much more difficult to overtake so it means it's much more important to start as close as possible to the front of the grid uh, which means uh, you can't afford, which means you have to do well in Q2 because you have to make uh, go straight through to Q2. Yeah, that's the thing. The weekend is all structured to make sure you get the best result possible on race day. And that's where a team like for Quattro you have to structure to make sure you're through to Q2. For someone like Marquez, if you're able to have that liberty, if you're able to have that confidence, it basically means you've got an extra run that you're able to do. It leaves you much more prepared for the, for the races and it just keeps basically snowballing that advantage you can have. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, everyone else has three lots of, uh, you know, three three sessions of 45 minutes of free practice, um, uh, plus, of course, the 30 minutes of FP4. Uh, but Marcus is using most of that. He's using, you know, the full 45 minutes of each session to actually test uh, set up and tires um, whereas uh, riders who are less confident about it who are actually chasing a time will have to spend you know 10 maybe 15 minutes uh, of each session just actually chasing a time throwing in the throwing soft tires at it uh, uh, choosing a choosing a um, a more qualifying centered uh, setup, running with less fuel, uh, hardening up the, the the suspension, all the rest of it, just to you know, just to allow them to chase that, and that's time which they can't spend on race setup. And Dave, just when you talk about the race settings and trying to find that setup, there's no magic bullets. There's nothing that a team suddenly finds that changes everything for their bike and that's why when you walk up and down pit lane when you're doing your uh, pit reporter job for Eurosport you see the rider huddled together with his crew chief his suspension engineer tyre tech the electronics guy and they're all trying to basically work towards finding the best compromise and it's all about the feedback that you can give from a rider to a crew chief to all of those engineers around them to then be able to have the crew chief delegate the responsibilities to find the solution but that all comes from the trust that you build over time. Obviously, we mentioned Mark, Mar- Mark Marquez, and Marquez is a very unique rider insofar as he's had the same crew chief for most of his career. He's worked with Santi Hernandez for over 10 years. Apart from his rookie season in MotoGP, he's pretty much been with him since he was coming through the ranks. So for someone like Marquez and Santi, just having that confidence of having worked together for so long, that also is another big advantage for them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to an extent, um, uh, Valentino Rossi had exactly the same thing for much of his career from from the moment he came into the five uh, hundreds as it was in two thousand. He was with Jerry uh, Jerry Burgess uh, and stayed with him, uh, you know, for 
uh, what was it through through 2015 um that's a that that's a long time to spend together and it does you really do build up uh, build up uh, trust um it was i interviewed tom o'kane once um uh, when uh, tom o'kane is now the uh, basically the development crew chief and or a development engineer for um uh for suzuki uh, at the time he was alicia spargaro's crew chief and he i talked to both him and um uh, and alicia spargaro uh, uh about that relationship and they said you know when they first introduced it, it's like a first date it's the same kind of nerves as well because it's such an important relationship it has to work there has to be a, there has to be a communication uh and uh, again talking to peter bomb a lot of it a lot of his um a lot of the work that you're doing is about managing the rider it's not just about managing the bike but it's also about managing the rider uh, channeling that uh, trying to understand what he's what the rider is saying not not literally but what they actually mean by what they are saying when they're describing a problem whether that's really a problem or whether it's uh, or whether the problem is somewhere else yeah, and that was what I found interesting whenever I was talking to Mick Shanley about this. I was asking him, you know, how do you have a good relationship with a rider? How do you have, you know, a good feedback from a rider? What's important for, for you to be able to get the best out of the bike? And for some riders, we've seen a lot of technical riders that know an awful lot about what the bike's doing underneath them that then go on to be crew chiefs or go on to have uh, careers as an electronics engineer. If you're Scott Smart, you know, Scott was a 500 Grand Prix rider, but Scott was too smart for his own good at times. And it was a case of Scott, obviously, after he retired, went into electronics. Even whenever he was still riding, he was actually doing the electronics and the wiring for most of the BSB paddock. And then, obviously, he's gone on to be the Superbike Technical Director, writing the rules and regulations. You've got lots of different riders that have moved on to be suspension techs. Simon Crayford did that after he finished racing. So there's been plenty of riders that sort of evolve into different jobs after their career. But it takes them a long time to learn all those lessons. And it's very easy for a rider to give too much feedback, to try and go into too much detail. And that's what I found interesting talking to Mick, because he just wants a rider to say whether a change is positive or negative. He wants them just to say whether it's making the bike better or what the limitations are. He doesn't need details because he wants to try and correlate that feedback to what he sees on the data. And it really is a case of, for different crew chiefs, they need different things. For someone like Marcel Dwinker, who's Alex Lowe's crew chief now, he comes from a suspension background, so he obviously will look at a lot of suspension details very differently to a crew chief like Pera Reba, also a Kawasaki. Reba's an ex-racer, so he really works on the mental side of getting a rider prepared. He worked with Lars Baz, and for the first two years they were together, he didn't change the bike, he said. He basically tried to find a base setup and then build Loris up to that. And then in their last season together, 2014, that's when they suddenly started to try and make a lot of changes and bring Loris's tech, uh, technical feedback further along. So it really is interesting to see how different crew chiefs try and approach the job. Yeah, uh, the example that springs to mind is I spoke to... Um, uh, Guy Coulon when he was uh, working with uh, Joan Zarco um, and one of the most interesting things that he told me was uh, Zarco when, um, the first time they 
were working together when Zarko had just joined the the the, the Tech Three t- uh, team, riding the Yamaha. Um, uh, they sat down. Uh, Zarko went out for a, went out on the bike, uh, did a few laps, came in, talked about what he felt and all the rest of it. And uh, Coulon said, "All right, okay, you felt that and that. This is what we're going to do to the bike." And Zarko said, "No, no, no, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I don't want to know what you what, what you do to the bike because if you tell me, that will influence the way that I uh, I think about the bike." All he wanted to do was just concentrate on riding on what he felt, uh, what he felt the bike was doing, what it was doing well, what it was doing badly, and then uh, just tell the crew chief and let the crew chief sort uh, it out. Yeah, it's interesting to see how those riders kind of approach it because again looking back to Lowe's and Vandermark at Yamaha over the last few years they've really been polar opposites when you talk to Mikey he's very clear it's the crew chief's job to fix the bike it's my job to just tell him what I feel and typically once you know a session's finished Mikey will do 10-15 minutes with his crew chief and then he's gone whereas on the other side of the pit box Lowe's could be sitting there for as long as he as long as his patience or as long as time would allow whether it was he had to be dragged off to a debrief or he had to be dragged off for a sponsor engagement otherwise he'd sit there the whole time and it's how different riders approach it and it's not how one rider is working harder than the other it's not how one rider is working better than the other it's about how one rider needs to work to get the best out of themselves some riders need that technical knowledge they need that understanding whereas other riders just need to be able to like van der mark go back to his motor home look back at the session, see what he's doing with the video, or just relax. Just take it easy and then come back to the box, see if the changes have been made, go out on the bike and see if they've improved the the package. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really is... um Every rider is different and every crew chief is different. And uh, that sort of communication is, is what becomes uh, so crucial. And that, as we said, understanding, they have to understand each other because there are some crew chiefs who uh, can be quite demanding and sort of you almost expect riders to be hanging around a lot. And there are other crew chiefs who um, uh, really want the rider sort of out of their hair as quickly as possible as soon as, they, as, soon as they've got the data out of them. Um, uh, whereas what you what you really want is you know the magic word synergy you want the 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 the, the to you want the rider and the crew chief to be able to work together uh, to create something better. But it, it's also worth saying that the crew chief, um, as you were saying, you did. There are people, uh, uh, Marcel Donker, um, uh, Ramon Forcada is the same. They come from suspension backgrounds, and so they're working. They are they're very focused on um, uh, on suspension and trying to get the best out of the, out of the suspension. Uh, there are others who come from other um, uh, other backgrounds. Uh, we were talking about extra riders as, as crew chief. Obviously, Andrew Pitt um, in World Superbikes now, uh, former World Supersport champion, and now uh, and now working as a uh, uh, as a rider uh, as a crew chief. Um, they all come from their different expertise, from sort of different areas. But really, what their job is is it's like the conductor of an orchestra in that they um, all the information flows through them, and they um, uh, they interpret the information and get everyone else to do uh, to do their work uh, or to to sort of fix each particular region and then take the feedback that comes from that to try and improve the bike. Yeah, and that's where you see the difference between a good team and a bad team. A good team can have a crew chief that's able to delegate rather than have to look over everyone's shoulder. There's been plenty of teams, whether you're in the Grand Prix paddock or the Superbike paddock, where 
you know, mistakes are made and they're commonly made by certain teams. So a crew chief's job in those instances isn't always about trying to improve the package. It's to try and make sure that everything's fitted correctly. It's to try and make sure that the bike is safe. It's to try and make sure that everyone's actually doing their job. And instead of being able to focus on improving the bike, their mental resources are being drawn towards just trying to make sure that certain boxes are ticked. And that's one of the biggest problems for some teams up and down the paddock. And that can be just where resources are a little bit thin. It can be where budget's bad or they just can't quite afford to have the right number of people in the box or the right people in the box. And that's where planning through a weekend becomes really important. That's where it's crucial that all of the team members know exactly what's going to happen. And again, that's one of the things I was asking Mick Shanley about it was how do you structure it so that all of your mechanics or your tire techs or everyone like that knows the job to do and he said that from Thursday morning he'll come up with a plan and he'll write down how many laps that they'll do on each exit which exit they'll use a fresh tire which exit they'll change the change the shock or which exit they'll make a big change or anything like that so that everyone in the team has it written down in front of them they don't have to go to Mick and ask him what's going to happen instead when the bike comes in they know right we've got to change the tires for this exit right we've got to have enough fuel for a 20 lap run right we've got to be able to do xyz and he's able to focus on being able to talk to his rider get the feedback and then see if the changes have made an improvement yeah exactly it really is uh, a, a managerial role a role where you're at where you're really overseeing um uh, where you're you're overseeing a whole uh, a whole process really, and, and like you, you mentioned, um, just making sure that everything's uh, put on correctly. That can uh, that comes back comes down to trust because the tr- the rider has to trust that the bike is not going to spit them off because somebody forgot to tighten up a bolt or tightened up a bolt to the wrong tolerance or uh, didn't set uh, didn't set things up the way that uh, that they were supposed to. Um, uh, you the, 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 what the what the rider wants is that the bike is going to be predictable, uh, so that's 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 really really important, I think. Yeah, and I think when you look back to last year, Eugene Laverty is a perfect example of what can happen whenever those mistakes are made, and he just lost his confidence in that team that the bike was going to be what it had to be through the course of that season. He had obviously suffered a bad injury at Imola, a really bad injury at Imola whenever the electronics failed. And he just never really regained the confidence in the team because he had a brake failure around two. He had problems during the testing uh, pre-season. And, and once those things happen, it's very difficult for a rider to get that confidence back and uh, really to be able to push yourself through what could be a little bit of a a shaky setup at any given time and maybe it's easier just to back yourself off and that's where it becomes really important to have good people surrounding you and Dave we've talked about the role of the crew chief but you talked to Peter Baum as well about his job now as a as a data engineer working for 2D and the importance that the electronics engineers have within MotoGP World Superbikes pretty much any form of racing now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's become more and more important um, as well. I mean, once upon a time, uh, I mean, I spoke to my uncle over Christmas who used to, uh, to uh, tune uh, basically two-stroke bikes. And I talked to him about um, um, uh, about setting up the, the, the race bikes. And basically, all he was interested in was the engine, was maximizing engine performance and getting the... Um, uh, 
making sure that the engine would last for an entire TT, would go as fast as possible through, through, through an entire TT without, uh, without blowing up. Um, because that was what, what won you races. Having, having a reliably, fa- a fast and reliable bike was better than having a really fast bike, which was going to, uh, going to, uh, going to go pop. Um, and when I talked to him about suspension and stuff and, and chassis setup and all the rest of it, this, you know, we're basically talking about sort of late seventies, early, uh, early eighties here. They, he, he spent less time on that. He didn't. He spent barely any time on that because it it was not um, uh, because you could make so much uh, so much difference with the engine. And as bikes have become more and more complete, um, uh, that means there's more and more data to look at and to examine. There are more and more ways to improve the bike. And it started out with, um, you know, just basic uh, geometry changes, you know. So what happens if we move the, uh, um, or what happens if you move the front up and down a bit or the uh, change the rake, change the trail, whatever. Um, then it came to suspension. People would be keeping track of suspension. And then it was uh, travel, electronics, especially once we had engine management on the uh, on the bike um uh you know ba- basically fuel injection it meant we could have um, uh, traction control and engine braking and all the rest of it through through the electronics and uh, that is just become incredibly complicated and it needs to be looked at from so many different angles and there are so many different ways to either change the bike or well uh, ruin it or improve it yeah, and that's the interesting thing, Dave, because if you look at when there was a time before data logging in Grand Prix racing, it really was a case of, if I make this change, this is the impact it had, and the crew chiefs would just have just sheets of paper just filled with all the different knock-on effects that would have to be made if you made a certain change. And uh, the uh, Robert Yamaha team were the first team that brought in data logging to be able to understand what was happening. And again, that was you were talking about uh, about talking with Tom O'Kane previously. Tom was one of the keys for that. And uh, when that team brought in their data logger, I think they had it in the tail unit and they'd take it out for the race because it was too heavy. And then suddenly the balance of the bike would be upset and there'd be chatter and there'd be different problems they had because the weight had changed. And suddenly, over a period of time, they realized, hang on a second, this isn't because the track conditions are changed. This is because the dynamics of the bike have changed. And it was one of those first things where the team were then able to understand that everything has this big knock-on effect. And even something that only weighs a couple of kilos that at the time the team would have thought was unimportant suddenly becomes really important. It just shows the development that can take place for that. Yeah, exactly. The funny thing is that um, uh, crew chiefs or you know teams are even now um, not doing as much electro- as much data logging during the race. So, for example, uh, I noticed in the past couple of years you would see um, uh, Yamaha using tire temperature sensors uh, sensors on the front tires, um, but they would only ever be fitted to the bike during uh, during free practice and uh, and during qualifying sometimes. Quite often for sometimes during qualifying and always during the during the race it would get taken off because you know you don't you don't care about um, knowing the exact um, uh, tire temperature at a particular point in time because the tire is either going to is either going to last or it's not going to last, uh, and um, uh, and you find out at the at the end of the race. You know the the uh, after forty five minutes and twenty five twenty six laps, uh, you get the the only data which really counts, and that's the order in which they cross the line. Yeah, and uh, for. 
teams, that's obviously all that the weekend is building towards. It's all about making sure that you can tick as many boxes before you get to the starting grid. And uh, when you talk to Peter, David, about the role of the data logging, the key thing was really all about being able to ascertain how efficient a team could be. It was understanding the different changes and the different elements, the knock-on effects, and basically being able to do all these things just in a quicker fashion than had previously been the case. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, uh, like all, um, uh, well, yeah, like all, like all technological advances, they're just about making life easier. They're, um, uh, well, they start off about being uh, about making life easier, but generally end up making life more complicated because it just adds a an extra layer of uh, a layer of, of possibility and therefore complications but yeah i mean once upon a time what you had was uh, was graph paper on which you were uh, graph paper and notes and then it would be an excel sheet and now it's uh, you know a data logging program uh, or a chassis program for example um, in which the chassis program will be able to calculate so if you need to know if the bike isn't working in a particular way you can say all right well what happens if we if we move the weight forward a little bit um uh, but you can't just move the weight forward a little bit because if you move the weight forward a little bit then it means that you know maybe you're losing a little bit of um uh, a little bit of wheel movement at the front you're having to change the rate control to accommodate it um it means you're changing the length of the swing arm length and all the rest of it and so there's lots of ways of um uh, of calculating it to make sure that you're only changing one variable at a time and changing one variable at a time is a lot more complicated than uh, than, than than you would have thought and that's what this software is doing and now you, the, now you can actually plug that same software into the data logging so you can actually map it from uh, uh, map it from place to place and see exactly where um, uh, what change a particular um, or what effect a particular change might have in a particular corner and uh, not just because you you know you might want to make a change because you're breaking into a corner uh, but if you make that change breaking into a corner um, uh, you uh, uh, and then you're in, in mid corner the whole dynamics of the bike changes a lot and you need it you, you need to you need to understand that and um, uh, that's that's what this sort of software does nowadays um, uh, which you know just basically gives you more more gives the crew chief more data to work for work with uh, again working towards the race yeah and they uh We've obviously talked, David, about how the weekend is structured for the teams from the start of the weekend, and it's all about building up towards the race. But even once you get through to the end of Sunday, it then becomes working for the next race. It becomes trying to learn from your mistakes from that weekend and try and learn where you can improve the bike. And suddenly the, the whole cycle just starts again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was one of the things that I enjoyed uh, from your uh, uh, from your story on on RacingLowdown.com with um, uh, Mick Shanley about uh, about the whole thing was that uh, really, I mean, the, the, the basically. The start of the next race starts uh, about five minutes after the first race is finished because, um, uh, you, first of all, you sit down with the rider and the rider just sort of says, this is what happened. But the rider is obviously, he's just got off the bike, so he's full of, they're, they're full of adrenaline, full of um, uh, emotion 
you know, the emotion of racing. Um, and so they have to come back a second time and then, uh, you know, maybe a day later and talk through again, maybe to go over some of the things that they've uh, forgotten. And then on the basis of what's been learnt at that race, then you can start to make a plan towards the next, uh, uh, towards the next race, which you will then go back and look at the data from last year, see where the bike was last year, see what's, uh, um, well, you know, what, what state it was in, what you were, what you wanted to do with the bike you have to go and look at you know okay what's the temperature going to be like what's the weather going to be like what are we going to need um uh, and then add into the mix okay what do we learn this weekend you know because the bike is the bike is never the same for week for, for week especially in especially in MotoGP but also in World Superbike the bike isn't isn't the same from week to week you know they will there will be new parts coming in there will be bits and pieces uh, 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 coming in to, to try which might make a slight improvement and um, uh, that can change the bike just enough to make the the, the data from last year n- not applicable yeah, and that's where you see big improvements made. Yamaha, again, is a big example of this because early in their development with the, as it was the new R1 at the time, they struggled at somewhere like Portimao or Laguna Seca. And then over a certain number of years, as they understood the bike more and more, suddenly it went from being a bike that they could try and fight for a top 10 finish with to trying to finish on the podium at those tracks, trying to challenge for a win. And it just shows as you learn more and more about that bike, because obviously the base of that bike in World Superbikes can't really change that fundamentally from uh, one year to the other, unless you bring in a new homologation. So it really is about understanding everything. And Dave, again, this is where it comes back to the trust that a rider can have with the people around him. And again, you can come back to Mark Marquez. Why is Mark winning so many world championships? Why is he winning so many races? Because he believes that the people around him know him better than he knows himself. They know exactly what he needs. They're able to build their race weekend so much in advance on the confidence of how he can ride that bike, the knowledge that they have for each other and of that bike. Yeah, exactly. It's not just um, Mark trusting his crew chief. It's also Asante Hernandez and the rest of the team trusting Mark, knowing that, okay, uh, this is what he wants. We'll give him that. And um, if he says he can sort out the rest, he can, uh, you know, if he can, if he says he can sort out the rest, he will sort out the rest, which is very much what we saw in 2019 when, um, uh, and his relationship with Takeo Yokoyama, who's the, basically the, the technical director or the, the, um, uh, the, 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 the technical director of the MotoGP project in, in HRC and um, he said after after Marcus won the championship um, uh, at the start of the year or well at the end of last year Marcus has said well, I haven't got enough power I need more horsepower to be able to stay, to to keep up with uh, with Ducati, and they gave him more horsepower. Never really fixed the bike; it made the bike quite difficult to ride. But he had the horsepower on the straights to to stick with Dovizioso, um, and then he just sort of figured out the corners of his own accord once he actually once he actually got there. Yeah, and for me, like what you're saying there, Dave, if trying to find the solution, obviously. Over the course of the last few weeks, a lot of people have been watching the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. And it's hard not to look at that and see the parallels to someone like Marquez, where his teammates just knew that Jordan would come through it at the end. And it was always a case of having that confidence, having that belief in someone that was an otherworldly talent, but also someone that just worked incredibly hard. Marquez has the talent, 
but he's also got the work ethic. And when you put in that trust element as well, it's very difficult to beat something that's such a complete package. Yeah, I mean, you really saw um, that with Maverick Vinales this year, where um, uh, uh, Vinales um, uh, split with uh, Ramon Forcada, uh, uh, had a new uh, had a new crew chief, um, and the relationship changed completely. He added a whole bunch of different people around him. Um, he was much more confident. He was much happier just just to talk to. He was, he was more happy. You noticed the change in atmosphere were made a, already made a huge difference. Um, and then, this, especially in the second half of the championship, we were talking about you know the, the changes which a factory which you can make in a factory. Uh, in a factory team um, we saw Yamaha bring a new exhaust and a carbon swing arm and uh, Rossi went backwards and forwards with them a few times and um, I think um, uh, Vinales tried it uh, once or maybe twice and then basically said just I don't want to try anymore you know I want to just try concentrate on getting everything I can out of this bike so in the end by stopping uh, he stopped trying to improve the bike through new parts, just concentrated on, on trying to extract the maximum performance out of a bike, working with a crew chief um, who uh, understood what, it, you know, they had a plan together. And that's the most important thing, I think, having a plan together to actually improve this and actually make, a, a, a make it work. I'll tell you what, Dave, we could do learn an awful lot about planning because... Most of our shows, there's no planning whatsoever. We really need to be able to think about things in advance. We need to come up with our really? session plans. We need to come up with our weekend plans, and then uh, we we'll need be a able to chief. really improve the podcast. Yeah, we need it. We need a crew chief. Uh, that's it's quite uh, it's quite clear that we uh, the, the, the the we need a, pr- uh, a crew chief. Um, Where's Neil when you need him? I, I know he's out going for a cycle because he suddenly <laughs> got the time available to get out of his house in Barcelona. But this is ridiculous, Dave. We need him here. Yeah, we do indeed. Um, one more thing, you were talking about uh, 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 about trust and the way that the, the crews work together. One of the things, um, uh, I mean, obviously, what happened to Eugene Laverty? That's in a well, you know one of the less well funded teams in the World Superbike Paddock, but it can happen at, in, at, at a very high level. Uh, as well um, for example Jorge Lorenzo's team in HRC last year was a group of extremely competent it was basically Alberto Puig put together the best team he thought he could from lots of separate individuals but it never gelled into a team and uh, speak to Peter Bomb about it you know you, were, you know, he'd been walking along just watching the mechanics work and um, he said you can see like some teams work really really well together and sometimes it's you know on, on, on it's in the same team on opposite sides of the garage there'll be one team who you can immediately see that they're all working together and they're all working uh, really really smoothly they understand each other no one has to, has to say very much because everyone knows know what needs to be done and who's going to do it and then there will be you know maybe on the other side of the garage it's it looks like complete chaos because everyone is trying to work at the same time. Everyone is trying to do the same job, and there isn't really the same sort of um, uh, there isn't the case that the same chemistry. And that chemistry inside the team, I think, is really really important. One of the one of the more overlooked things, and it's not about having the best necessarily having the best people. It's about having the right per- the, the right person in the right place who fits perfectly. There are I have had people talk to me and say that um, you know people who are in a position to know that Santi Hernandez is not the most uh, he's not the most technically gifted crew chief um, 
but that doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter whether um, uh, that he's whether he's the most technically gifted or not. He's the perfect crew chief for Mar- for uh, for Mark Marquez because he understands Mark Marquez. He listens to to Mark Marquez. He knows what to give Mark Marquez when he needs to, and he knows where he knows he knows who to ask to get the right answers. So um, it's. Uh, yeah, there, there, there are it, there are so many different factors, and that's what makes motorcycle racing so fascinating. Yeah, and that's what's the key thing. Whenever you look at again that relationship you see within Kawasaki between Dwinker and Reba, that's the biggest rivalry in World Superbikes. It's nothing about Tom Sykes versus Jonathan Ray for years. It was the two crew chiefs, and one had to always be better than the other because they worked in very different ways. They one works very much as a technical basis and uh, Reba very much believes in getting all of the people within his crew to feel valued, to feel like they're really giving their feedback that they're working at their best. And obviously Per Reba's got a very good technical knowledge as well, but it's always interesting to see just those subtle differences between two sides of the garage. Yeah, exactly. That's I've heard exactly the same uh, uh, thing about the Mark VDS Moto Two team at some point when Pete Benson was there. That there was a much bigger rivalry between the crew chiefs than there was actually between the riders at the time, um, uh, because they are both. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 crew chiefs have as much ego as the riders. They they they're just as interested in winning, and it takes it costs them just as much energy as well. It takes so much. It, it, it consumes their lives. Um, and, uh, the, the, you know, they, they sacrifice, they sacrifice a lot, uh, uh, to try to, to try to win winning, you know, it matters as much to them as it matters to the riders as well. I think sometimes I think people sort of underestimate that as well. Obviously the crew chiefs are a little bit older. They're in a different stage of their lives. They're married, they have kids, they're, they, they're a little bit different, but uh, even then, I mean, you know, the, um, if you put them on the spot and said, you know, what would you rather do, win a cha- win a um, win a world championship or not see your wife and kids, you would um, uh, you you'd only get an honest uh, answer off the record and in private, I think. <laughs> what about you, Dave? Which would it be? Oh, for me, it's easy. It's the uh, for me, it's my family. So that's uh, it's 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 the woman who's prepared to put up with me. I can't afford to sacrifice that because um, I would be completely useless. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I haven't met Rosha so many times, I couldn't agree more. Um, But uh, Dave, obviously, that brings us to an end for this show. It's a little bit of a different show. Again, during the course of the lockdown, we've had lots of different retro shows. And now just a look back at uh, this kind of dynamic and the relationships and the structure for a race weekend. But uh, what's the the plan for you over the, the next couple of weeks? Do you have any... Anything planned? Any big, uh, any big features for the website that are coming? Um, uh, there's uh, may yeah. There's one or two bits. I actually have a compl- have a, a backlog of uh, of work which I need to get through. Um, uh, speaking of extremely competitive people, I have a um, uh, an interview with Andrea Zunia who worked with Honda for a long time. I have um, uh, a feature which uh, Hungarian journalist Nikki Kovac wrote uh, wrote for me about. Um, uh, Comparing what would happen in past seasons if you, uh, if we had the shortened season which we which we used to, um, and I, I'm sort of expecting to see some news about the season, sort of soonish because it feels like 
they are we're we're moving towards uh, the, the possibility of a uh, of a calendar and maybe um, uh, maybe things happening as well. There have been uh, restrictions easing. There was um, uh, news that, for example, in Austria, they're going to start li- uh, allowing li- uh, you know large groups of people to to gather. First of all, up to five hundred people, and then in August, up to a thousand people. So there's sort of the the, the strange possibility that um, if there's a MotoGP race in Austria that there could be a thousand fans there um, uh, which would be almost as many fans as there are people in the paddock so um, uh, yeah it feels like it feels like it's moving and I, I mean I presume it's the same for you really yeah we've seen a lot of changes here over the course of the last couple of weeks and just this week is where some of the restrictions have been lifted Certain uh, shops have been reopened, garden centres, golf clubs have been reopened. There's a lot more movement that's possible for people now. So we are getting to that point now where governments around Europe are basically trying to just get as much information as possible. And the only way they can do that is by lifting some of the restrictions. But the big thing for me was we've now seen that racing's back. There was a NASCAR race. There was no one in the crowd and it looked really strange. But once the race started, you just focused on the cars. And uh, it was great to see some sort of racing back. Moto America is coming back soon. Supercross is coming back in a couple of weeks' time. So we're starting to see how different sporting events are able to go ahead. And and that's what's going to give us all a lot of hope for being able to get back to MotoGP, to World Superbikes. The CEV Repsol Championship just announced that they'll go to Portugal for... Uh, Estoril and Portimao to start their season in July. So it does show that everyone is trying to build up towards those July dates to get back to racing. Yeah, exactly. And I presume you've got uh, every single Bundesliga were, uh, game from this weekend uh, uh, recorded and ready to watch. Also, you I've see- already watched them, Dave. <laughs> Taking a I've already from- lost, me, lost all my me, me COVID money for the week <laughs> on uh, gambling on the Bundesliga. I was trying to just make, make back all the, the wages that we're all missing by not having racing. <laughs> uh, right. Well, it, it beats, uh, it beats uh, trying to win a football manager, right? Uh, nothing beats that I'll tell you what Dave that's how I've spent my lockdown and it has been an incredibly fruitful experience not a complete waste of many many days but uh, you know you've got to be able to do something to to keep yourself occupied during these kind of times and uh, hopefully that's one of the things that the podcast is able to do for all of our listeners because we've been getting lots of suggestions from people sending whether it's direct messages to at Paddock Pass Pod, giving us suggestions for the show, or whether it's been sending questions to at Moto Matters or to myself at Steve English GP, or uh, sending them to at Neil Morrison eighty seven. If you have questions that you want answered, be sure to send them to us because in a couple of weeks' time, the plan is to be able to have basically just a Q and A Q&A show again and. Uh, the only way those work is if we get questions in from listeners. So if there's anything that anyone wants answered on. World Superbikes, MotoGP, racing in general, just uh, send us a tweet and we'll be able to get to them as soon as possible. Yeah, exactly. We're definitely, uh, well, I'm definitely looking forward to hear what what questions people have because it's been such a strange situation that um, uh, it makes you wonder, you know, how uh, how fans view the view the view the whole thing and you know what they're what they're most interested in. 
yeah, and I think that's one of the key things. It's how fans view what's happening now because everyone needs a distraction. That's why it was great when the Bundesliga came back. You suddenly had something to watch on Saturday afternoon. And obviously, if racing was back, we'd all feel the same. You've got something to look forward to through the week. But it is a case of it has to be as safe as possible to do it. But send us your feedback on how you're filling the time without racing your feelings on when you think things should be able to reopen and, and uh, different elements of what's happening during the lockdown. Because for for us, it's interesting to get the feedback and the, the understanding of what fans think about everything right now. For me, David, the key thing is just that we're able to be as safe as possible because you don't want to pick up this illness by going to a racetrack and then taking it home to give to someone else that may not be strong enough to actually deal with the virus. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, for me, I mean, my um, uh, my my wife is uh, she has a gardening business, and she goes around to you know the, the homes of of elderly people to look after their gardens. And even though this, um, uh, she's been very very careful, and uh, you know, not got indoors, uh, kept away from them. Uh, avoided any uh, any form of contact but even then if I if I was able to go to a race um, you know you'd have to think twice about it because all of a sudden you you know you're there with a thousand people you haven't seen for a very long time and you don't know you don't know how it's going to be I'm particularly interested to know about whether uh, you know you the listener as a fan um, if there was a race you know if there was a race now would you go uh, or uh, you know would you be would you be willing to go to a race in, in July or would you be willing to, to go to a race in November I think that's because again all of these perceptions are going to change as, as the situation changes things have changed so much in what is it I don't know 10, 12 weeks it's just been it's, it's genuinely been an insane time to live really yeah, and that's what I found really interesting about NASCAR coming back because you were able to suddenly see what it means to host a race. And uh, for NASCAR, they basically had where there were temperature checks at the gate for all team members as they arrived. You were given a predetermined slot for each team. So in the case of MotoGP, it would be three o'clock for Repsol Honda, four o'clock for Ducati, five o'clock for Yamaha. And this was when you had to arrive so that you could be screened to get through the paddock so they had lots of different structures in place to make sure that it was a safe working environment and for me at least Dave it showed that when we go back to racing that uh, you know all series are going to have these kind of restrictions in place to look out for everyone and that's what uh, gave me an awful lot of confidence for when we get back racing that it will be safe for the people inside the paddock. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, it, uh, it looks like, for example, there won't be any, um, uh, you know, not basically non-dawner media at the first MotoGP races, which is um, a, a real shame, but extremely uh, quite understandable because it, it's obvious that you know they can't they can't risk this entire enterprise. They can't uh, try and organize a race and then risk someone getting a, 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 a risk a journalist bringing the disease in um, and uh, prevent, you know, preventing any more racing uh, from happening. You know, they, they want to sort of limit the risk as much as possible. And I think that's really, uh, uh, I think that's going to be really important. Yeah. We said earlier on about the restrictions that are being or will be imposed on teams where right now it's proposed 20 crew members per bike. So it does show that a lot of steps are being taken. And that suddenly means where a lot of jobs 
that were done in the back of a truck will now be done remotely back at base. So you'll have a lot of electronics, data analysts that will all be working from back at base. It'll almost mimic what happens in Formula One where there's this huge group of people back at mission control. A hundred people, I think it's it's uh, back at the factories that are allowed into their mission control room for each team. And if one person leaves, another person can come in, but they have to have that limit of 100 people in the room at any given time. So there's lots of different ways that these kind of things can be implemented. And it'll be interesting to see how everything will be done once we get back to racing. But I think we've moved slightly off topic there. And uh, it's as good a time as any to bring a close to this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. So as I said earlier on, make sure to give us your feedback at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter. And uh, if you want to support the podcast on uh, patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, you can support us in two different ways. We've got uh, two different tiers. The $10 tier is actually an interesting one. As I said, we were looking to have a Q&A show in the next couple of weeks. If you want to be guaranteed to have your question answered during the course of that show, uh, you can you can become a $10 a month patron and uh, we'll answer your questions. You can also just send us messages and uh, we'll be able to answer them off air as well. So if you want to support the podcast, patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. So David, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure as always. And thanks to everyone for listening to the show once again. So until the next time in the Paddock Pass podcast, for myself, Steve English, from David Emmett, we'll see you all next time. That was, I think that was quite good.